Inspired Execution is a podcast featuring tech leaders from some of the world's largest enterprises and fastest-growing startups. Hosted by Datastax Chairman and CEO Chet Kapoor, each episode follows a leader's journey to scaling a massive business while inspiring their teams. Join us to learn about the experiences that have shaped them, challenges they've overcome, and the advice they'd give to their younger selves. G2 Patel, SVP and General Manager of Cisco's Security and Collaboration Division, is focused on creating world-class subscription-based products that solve Cisco customers' biggest challenges. On today's episode, he walks us through delivering a multi-product platform and shares the six things you need to build a great company. G2 also discusses the importance of picking the people you work with and curating your days to stay energized. You'll learn about the future of work and the power of compounding value. G2, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Jeff, thank you for having me, man. It's good to finally be back in touch after a few years where you had started at Google and then we had lost touch for a while. So it's, uh, it's great to be back in touch again. Thank you. So you recently joined Cisco and you spent five years at Box before that and EMC before that. Tell us a little bit about your professional journey. A lot of us get lucky a few times in life, and I'm definitely one of those. I started my career actually in the reverse order than what most people do. I started my career in a startup, ran my own business for the first 17 years, and then decided I wanted to learn scale and then went to a large company, went to EMC. And then from there, we had this kind of incubation startup that we had purchased. And they said, do you want to go out and run this business and be CEO of that business? And so we did that, grew that business uh, very quickly to about 100 million in about two and a half years. And that was a fun ride. And then, you know, Dell was buying EMC and they wanted to make sure that they optimized on um, paying off the debt. So they didn't want to go out and do anything that was kind of completely, um, you know, high growth. And so they said, let's carve this business out. So we sold it to private equity. And I then at that point in time, Aaron Levy um, is a good friend. We were having dinner one night. And then he said, why don't you come join us? I decided to join him and spent five years with him, which was among the best five years professionally that I spent um, with anyone. He's one of the most wonderful humans. And then this amazing opportunity came up with Chuck at Cisco to say, hey, do you want to run the collaboration and security business in the midst of a pandemic, which is in some ways, like you can have so much impact and make so, such a huge difference in the world with people. It was too hard to say no to. And here I am. And it's been seven or eight months now. And it's been a fantastic ride. And the good news is I still talk to Aaron just as much as I used to in the past. And so I've actually gotten the best of both worlds. <laughs> in these years, what was hard? You know, I mean, I... Um, I'm just not as smart as the rest. So I just have to work harder in general to be able to get to be at par. And then in Silicon Valley, you know, there's some pretty amazing talented people that are here. And in order to keep up, it takes a lot of effort. So initially, it just took me a while to get to the rhythm and pace. The thing that was hardest for me, actually, was not working for myself when I came to the Valley first, because that was the, what I thought would be the hardest. And I'm so glad I did that because it just gave you an idea of scale. And so that was that took some adjustment where you couldn't just go out and do something. You had to get an idea socialized, get buy-in from people. You know, like we didn't have to do that much of that in a small company. And then you're going from that 20-person company to 60,000 people was a bit of an adjustment. But 
you know, I had some great coaches along the way. In fact, my first boss, Rick Devenuti, is still my coach. And so I still um, have him as my coach. And it's been fantastic to kind of go through that. But I think the biggest one was just not working for yourself initially to get adjusted to it. But now I wouldn't do it any other way. This is actually a lot more fun. You can do a lot more consequential things at scale, you know. And what was easy? What was easy for me was I love people. And so it didn't matter if you were 20 people or with 1,000 people or 10,000 people or 100,000 people. I draw my energy from people. So dealing with people, understanding different kinds of people, what makes them tick, how do you make sure that you get the most out of them, that didn't really change and that came pretty naturally to me. And so I was lucky on that dimension. The other thing that I had a fantasy about when I was working for myself as a consultant was I had this fascination growing up about product. And I used to always find it so amazing when I was at in Chicago saying, wow, these companies in Silicon Valley, they're creating all these pieces of amazing technology and they are literally changing how everyone works. I used, I used to always find it fascinating when I'd go to London and I'd see an ad of an American company and I'm like, this is just, everything's just completely globalized. And then being able to be in the midst of that where you're building high-scale software that billions of people use is such a privilege and something that came naturally because I was so passionate about it that I just, you know, it's it doesn't feel like work. That's awesome. My suggestion to anybody you know, who's starting out the career is two things. One is make sure you do something where you'll be happy to get paid for it, but you would do it anyway. The second thing is go and work for people that you really respect because that'll, that will change your trajectory, right, forever because you'll pick up some really good habits. Chet, the one thing on that one that's really important is um, I am so lucky with the people that I've worked for, but I have also met people that have worked for people that are just complete assholes on the other side. And I will tell you this, that it makes a world of a difference. You know, a lot of people pick brands, pick the people you're going to work with. It, it'll be the brand, you know, 10 out of 10 times. It was, um, I mean, for, for me personally, right, it was, it, it has shaped everything I've ever done. It's much like a child, right? A large portion of their personality gets formed in the first four years of their lives. And uh, I think it's true for your professional career as well, right? Um, and working for for Next and for Steve Jobs made all the difference in the world, right? And that just creates a trajectory. And what you do over time is you undo some things as well as you redo some things. But the baseline of working with smart people and trying to create phenomenal products that change the world stays with you forever. So during your time at Box, you did something spectacular, right? Uh, which is you and Aaron went from a single product application to a multi-product platform while like quadrupling your revenue. Just one of those, right? Just just going from a single product and being at EMC, you saw this going from a single product to a to a platform strategy is hard. But doing that while you're quadrupling your revenue is even harder, right? Almost impossible. Tell us a little bit about what you faced when you were doing this, right? I mean, because I talk to a lot of people and it's not just Valley people who have products, right? There are a bunch of companies out there who are not digital natives, they're digital immigrants, and they want to do a platform strategy, right? What would your advice to them be given that you've been through it? Well, I'll tell you this, in the world of software, the companies that actually get disproportionate amount of share in the market 
tend to be ones that become platforms. And what do I mean by it become platforms? That means that you are creating something on top of which other people can add value, where over time, the amount of economic value that gets accreted by the ecosystem is greater than what's getting accreted to you. That's truly a platform. And other people are building on top of um, what, what you've actually taken. And your core underlying value set is getting compounded by the power of all other people's imagination. The hard part about a platform is that the use cases aren't all completely known like you do in an application. So in an application, you have a very defined use case, say, this is what I need to do. In a platform, you actually have a developer ecosystem and they imagine things that you would have never imagined. And before you know it, you're like, oh, wow, like they did that with us? That's not what we had thought about. And so that was a pretty interesting journey to go through. I think on the multi-product side is another pretty important transition um, is when you have a single product, there's a certain selling motion and there's a certain dynamic in the company. And then when you start having multiple products, how do you get your distribution engine to make sure that they can actually still use your existing route to market, but can actually have the other products flow into that route to market in an easy enough manner? Oftentimes when people build multiple products, one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is they will not pay attention to the existing route to market, and they'll actually build a product for an entirely different route to market. And then you don't get any scale from the business that you have. So your buying centers and your routes to market, if you can minimize the number of buying centers and routes to market you have in a company, the better off you're going to be because the more you can actually scale. Now, of course, you're not going to be able to have just one. Over time, it just expands. But but try not to have 50 of those because when you have 50, it gets really hard to go out and scale something because you know, your distribution engine just does not get leverage. No, that's a great point. Now, so, so it's really interesting. It seems like the first one going to a platform strategy, right? Where people are building on you and you're not just, you, you, you don't know exactly what people are going to build on you because they take your APIs and do many more things with it. You can isolate that to a group of people and say, go for it, right? And go and make that happen. The second part, which is creating a multi-product sales team or route to market, that I feel like is one of the hardest things a company at scale does. I mean, I, I had a chance to see this at IBM. I know you got a chance to see this at EMC and you're probably seeing it at Cisco. Um, it, is not, it is not a simple problem to solve, right? Uh, any, any tips and tricks on what you saw at Box that worked? Yeah, I think at Box and also at EMC and Cisco, like the thing that you have to do in a multi-product company is make sure that you um, massively simplify the motion that the customer goes through in order to consume your product. Imagine if a company has one product to sell, you can get very detailed. Now they have two products to sell. Okay, they can learn two products. Now think about them having five products to sell. It gets a little bit more complicated because you're going to now need some specialists for each one of the products, especially if they're in different buying centers. Now think of a company that you know, you're scaling, you're doing really well. You've got 10 products, 15 products. At places like Cisco, you've got hundreds of products. Uh, how do you then get the shelf space in a salesperson's mind to say, sell this product and make sure that this is the scenario uh, and the playbook that you have to run when a customer has this problem that's been articulated? And how do you go out and create the need for that? It gets to be pretty complicated. And so the way to, um, I, I've always found that the simplest way to do this is keep your products insanely simple and make sure that you're solving the most important problems. 
And don't get overly enthusiastic as a product person on trying to get to comprehensiveness in your messaging, rather get to memorability. Memorability trumps comprehensiveness every single day of the week and twice on Sunday. So whatever you build, make sure that people remember the things you talk about. You don't have to talk about every single thing that you built. And this is a mistake that product people make all the time because they start going into a laundry list of things that they've actually done. Probably the top three or five is all that people can remember. So make sure that those top three or five are really different from the rest of the competition. It doesn't always have to only be better. It has to be different. Because if people don't see you as meaningfully different, they won't switch to you. Like we have a rule internally, which is if you just have something that's 20% better than the competition, the customer is not going to move over to you. You have to be 10x better. In order to be 10x better, you have to deliberately think about what are you going to do to make it 10x better? It doesn't happen as an accident. And number two is the business model shifts is actually what causes most of the disruption, not just a feature or an implementation of a feature. Um, and so think about those things as you're building these multi-product, you know, kind of portfolios for your distribution engine, whether it be partners, whether it be online direct, whether it be through a direct sales force and ensure that they're able to digest that as easily as it needs to be digested so that you can get to mass scale distribution. Because the hardest challenge that you have is if you don't get to distribution, eventually it becomes a hobby. And I, I feel like there's like six things you have to keep in mind to be really thoughtful about what you'd build for a um, great company. The first one is timing. Timing always trumps everything else and you don't control it. The second one is market. You have to have a market that you can go after. It's a large market, but you can take it off a bite at a time. Third is the team. You got to have a great team. Market trumps team, in my opinion, because if you have a great market, it'll pull a mediocre team up. But if you have a shitty market, you'll even get the best team down. This is a controversial, debatable topic sometimes. So timing market team, fourth is product, fifth is brand, and sixth is distribution. If you don't have all six, you don't build a great company, but they, they go in sequential order. Timing trumps market, market trumps team, team trumps product, product trumps brand, brand trumps distribution. But you have to have all six in order to build a great company. My general take to young companies are PMF trumps, you know, product market fit trumps everything. So just try to, you know, no matter, no matter what, just, just focus on the pixels, right? And, and I'm using pixel as a figure of speech. It can be APIs, right? Just get really fixated on what gives you PMF. And, and a lot of people get stuck on PMF is actually UX, right? Or it is your API design. It could be just, we are integrated to more things than anybody else and you need it and it might be ugly, but it's, but you need it. The way I think about that chat is um, on the product market fit side, you know, the closest way to tell that you've got product market fit is just look at your retention curve. If people come back and you deeply understand why they come back, then eventually you know that you've got product market fit. The other thing that's scary about product market fit is just because you have it doesn't mean you won't lose it. So protect it when you have it. And I like the combination of both. I like the retention piece, but I also like when you are revising your forecasts every month, you know that something beyond you, the flywheel is working. Right. And so people are talking to others. There's some virality involved. But I like the fact that you also look at your retention rates, because if you don't pay attention to it, you just see your growth curve of people coming into the door, but not coming in again. You, there's a high chance you would lose it. 
Yeah, I think like retention is a prerequisite for growth. If you don't have good retention, you shouldn't even bother with growth because all you have is a leaky bucket. Shifting gears, you recently shared on LinkedIn that you've had uh, your best day yet at Cisco. Tell us a little bit more about that day. What ends up happening is we optimize so much around productivity in a day that sometimes you you forget that there are certain things for you as a human that make you more energized and there's certain things that sap your energy. For me, the things that make me energized is sitting with a team of people and imagining what a product could look like that we could build for a market that people get really excited about. And I love that creative process. In any job, you can't do that all day long because there's other things that you have to do and you have to have, you know, there has to be a sales compensation meeting that needs to be had. And there has to be something around data center to make sure that you're getting the right level of efficiency and scale and the uptime. And there's a bunch of things that you would need to do in a day, on, on a daily basis. But what that day told me was a couple hours of that creative process interspersed in the right way with the other activities made me get really energized. And it's like, oh, the, the realization I had that day was if I just had a couple of these hours interspersed during the week and on multiple days and curate my days that way carefully, chances are I'm just going to walk away at the end of a 14-hour day really energized rather than being sapped of energy. Now, you can't do that every day, um, but as much as you can, the better off you're going to be. And that's in your control. So the thing that you have to do is really understand what parts energize you and what parts don't. And it doesn't mean you don't do the things at all that don't energize you. Not all of us have that luxury. However, you have to make sure you infuse a day with the things that do energize you because it's going to be better for the people around you to deal with you if you're just a happier person. Yeah, I agree. I, I totally agree. It's like, you know, make sure you get a good dose of what you love and then um, you can you can tolerate um, what you like or or just kind of like, you know, things that you have to do, right? That combination is really, really important. We were talking about this before we started the podcast. Um, COVID is strange, right? It's now been a year. Everybody wants to get it behind us, but we need to we need to keep the focus on products. We need to keep the focus on users. How have you gotten through this over the last year? Any tips and tricks? I've been very blessed in the sense that the space that I have at home that allows me to work productively is actually really good. Like I've got, you know, five screens in front of me. I've got a big desk. I've got a dedicated room. I I can actually take calls and not bother anyone at home. I don't have a huge amount of kind of activity going on around me. And so those are just kind of positions of privilege to be in. And you have to recognize that because it's not that easy for everyone. I do feel like there's a fundamental shift that's going on right now. Everything changed last year at this time when we all switched to working from home. And I think there's going to be yet another change that's going to be just as foundational that's going to happen again, which is as people start coming back to the office, the future of work in my mind is going to be definitively hybrid. Sometimes people are going to work from home. Sometimes they're going to work from the office, sometimes somewhere in the middle. And as you start to create that kind of mode of working, it's going to be very important that, you know, it was easy when everyone worked in the office. It was actually not that hard when everyone moved to working from home because everyone had a level playing field. 
But if you remember back pre-COVID, when there were a couple of people that dialed in on a call or, you know, kind of conferenced in on a call, they felt like second-class citizens because they weren't part of the in-club, which was a group of people that were all sitting together in a conference room. And now when you go into this mixed mode reality where not everyone's going to be in the office, but some of them are going to be in the office, some of them are going to be home. How does that actually manifest itself? And how do you make sure that you don't create second-class citizens and you don't make geography an unfair advantage for the people that are all together physically? I think that's a much more profound problem for us to solve because in the long run, if we are successful as humans, geography does not become the limiter. And 3 billion digital workers should be able to participate in a global economy no matter where they are, regardless of the geography, regardless of the language preference, regardless of the socioeconomic level, regardless of their tech proficiency level, regardless of their personality type, whether they're an introvert or an extrovert, they should be able to participate equally in a global economy. And if we do that, frankly, there's nothing greater to contribute to GDP than that globally. But in order to make that happen, we have to take away this kind of notion that there are second-class citizens in the world. And I think that's going to be very important. So if there's four people in a room and three people remotely, what's the tech that you can use so that the four people in a room don't have an unfair advantage and the three people that are remote don't feel left out from the action? Uh, how do you make sure that you know if there's 10 people in a room that you can see everyone's facial expressions and body language just as well as if when you're sitting in a room I think there's a lot of innovation that needs to happen in that area. We're, of course, working on it pretty closely, but that's going to be a um, pretty interesting wave of innovation that will go on, which I, I think fundamentally could change how humans operate globally. Um, and it could make a much brighter future for people, regardless of where they are. Chet, I know you came from India. I came from India when we were younger. I would have not had nearly the access to opportunity if I had stayed there than come here because geography mattered. And I would love in my lifetime where that does not become the case. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's awesome, Jitu. It's, you know, I, I was going to say in the middle that, you know, I'm, I'm setting you up for a pitch uh, because I know you're working on this at WebEx, but it's not, it's just a, it's a passionate point of view, right? It goes back to our roots. Uh, and I think it matters, right? I saw this at Google, right? And Google for... For a hundred thousand plus people, had it definitely done some really awesome things with Hangouts, and I know WebEx has been on the forefront of it. There is a next level, though, because I think we've kind of like all gotten to where it should be, but I think there's a step function coming. I feel for this hybrid environment where I feel like I'm in a meeting, even though I can choose to be in one meeting in person and another meeting from home. Right, but it all feels like generally the same. I think the tech has to help us get there. We actually think of it where it's, you know, our goal is can you make a virtual meeting 10x better than an in-person interaction? I think we're um we're gonna be there faster than you know it. That doesn't mean that in-person interactions aren't valuable. Like for example, you know, uh when you go out to dinner and break bread with someone there's something extremely tangible and valuable about that. And there's a bonding that happens during that kind of shared moment between two humans that's very special. But when you're actually having a business meeting, you can probably get more done in a virtual environment because you've got more people, especially as you get into larger audiences. I have 50 people in a room. I can actually do much more to go out and get signals from 50 people 
digitally than I can in a physical environment. And so I think there's a lot of innovation that's to be had. And I feel we are in our early days when people tell me, um, you know, is this is this it? And I'm like, you know, just imagine in five to 10 years, I don't think we'll be looking at two by two boxes on a screen as the best way that 50 people can interact with each other or 100 people or 1,000 people or 100,000 people. There's, there has to be a better way to do it. Awesome. If you need an alpha user, let me know. We'll be, uh, we'll be game because we are always experimenting. You know, we're a distributed company. So what lands up happening is um, we, we use all the tips and tricks all over the place to get this going. So look forward to the uh, awesome innovation. Two-part question. Who inspires you? And what would be the couple of things you would tell a younger version of yourself? Growing up, uh, my mother had a very hard life. My dad was pretty abusive. And, you know, she powered through and you know, sold her last pieces of jewelry to get me to one semester in college when I came to America. And so I'd say that she definitely is the reason that I'm here. So I, she inspires me a lot. I think, you know, my daughter now to see how how she is, you know, really pushing boundaries and doing things that are extremely on the creative front at a very different level than what I could ever imagine doing is super inspiring. And then I would say... Like if you look at public figures, the one that I find so inspiring, and this is, you know, probably will piss off some of your listeners and then make some people happy, but Barack Obama, he's so good at just the way in which he operates as a leader. I had campaigned for him at one point in time during, I used to live in Chicago and I'd gone to campaign. And, you know, the way that they do it is they just, you bring your cell phone, they give you a list of people to call. And you just sit down anywhere on the floor and you start calling. And the amazing part about that experience was I we started calling, but you would call people and people would get angry on the other side and they'd start yelling at you. Why are you calling? And all you're calling and telling them about is, do you have all that you need to go vote? It's not who you're going to vote for. Do you have everything you need to go vote? Get people out to vote. And the amazing part was everyone in that campaign office that was remote never once raised a voice when someone was mean on the other side, never once did anything because the leadership that came from the top set a tone. And the moment we walked into that, that room, it was almost automatic that you would follow the tone of the leader and you're not going to do anything that's disrespectful, even if you're showing dis been shown disrespect on the other side. And it was an unbelievable experience to go through to say, the, the tone gets set from the top even when you're not around. And so words matter and your values matter. And he had done such a good job of that. And so I think he's a, he's a source of inspiration for sure. And what advice would you give a younger version of yourself? These journeys of success that you see in other people seem so far away. But if you keep chipping away little by little, there is a power of compounding that's not understood by most people. And if I would have just said to myself, my one big regret is I understood the foundational principles of the power of compounding in life way too late. Because if you just understand the power of compounding and not just how you compound wealth, but how you compound value and how you compound learning and knowledge, little by little, if you keep doing it consistently, before you know it and you look back, there's a world of knowledge you've accumulated. And um, 
So I would say the advice I'd give to myself is, you know, read the book on power of compounding sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, that is awesome, awesome advice. Uh, G2, this has been phenomenal. It is always great to hang out with you. We really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Chad. And thank you for doing these. These are good for the younger generation. And if they can take away one thing from something like this, it's, it's worth the time. So th I really appreciate you doing this. Building a successful multi-product platform requires simplification and memorability. So make sure you're solving the most important problems first. And remember that it's not enough to just be better than the competition. You also have to be different. The future of work is hybrid. New technologies will help us create a global economy where everyone can participate equally, no matter where they live, what language they speak, or their socioeconomic status. G2 reminds us to always make time for the activities that energize us. Finally, stay persistent with your goals and harness the power of compounding value in life. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Inspired Execution Podcast, hosted by Chairman and CEO of Datastacks, Chet Kapoor. We have many more guests and amazing stories to come, so stay tuned. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the series to be notified when a new episode is released. And for Apple Podcast listeners, please rate and review the show to help give it a wider reach to listeners such as yourself. And feel free to drop us any questions or feedback at inspiredexecution at datastacks.com.